Well, we continue this morning our worship series on second chances as we've journeyed with the disciples towards the end of the Gospel of John, the stories that appear after Jesus rose from the dead as we walk with the disciples during those very confusing days. We've seen Jesus appear in the upper room to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there that day. Last week we saw Jesus' encounter the second time when he appeared to Thomas and Thomas said, show me the holes in your hands and your feet. And he showed him and Thomas saw and Thomas believed. And Jesus said, blessed are you who see and believe, but blessed are us who believe without seeing. Now we've come to that third encounter of Jesus with the disciples. And we've reached the point in John's gospel where scholars begin questioning if the rest of this story was actually even written. By John. Now, actually, we're not sure really who wrote the gospel. Throughout the gospel, there's a disciple, as you heard in the story today, the disciple referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. Tradition assumes that is the apostle John. But whoever wrote it, regardless, chapter 21 from this point on sounds a little different. You can't hear it well in the English, but I remember enough from the Greek in my seminary classes to know that the writing, well, it's different. You know how you read an author and you can just tell they have a different style. The person who wrote the end of this gospel has a little different style writing these last few stories. Somewhere along the way, maybe 50, 100 or so years after John finished his gospel, probably thought, well, you know, ending with Thomas is just not enough. We need to clean this up a little bit. There's still so much unresolved of the, for the disciples post-resurrection, especially for Peter. Peter, who so emphatically said he would never leave Jesus, who denied Jesus. And yet, where's his closure? Where's Peter's closure in this story? More needs to be said. And so someone wrote chapter 21, taking from the stories that were out there about Jesus and the disciples that hadn't yet been included in a gospel volume. John's gospel was the last one written, so there were still stories out there. And someone wrote down these stories, the one we heard today. But who it was, I don't know. And frankly, I don't really care because I think chapter 21 is the best chapter in the whole gospel of John. Now, there's some good stories in the gospel of John, some of the best, but this chapter is my favorite. And it doesn't sound like John, maybe, but it sounds like life. This story is true. This happened. This is how things happen isn't it? It's a story that's still true today. Here, you are presented with a second chance, a new lease on life, a chance to redo something, correct past mistakes, step into your future, take a leap of faith, embrace change, and welcome new life. And what do you do? What do we do? Instead of stepping forward, we step back. We try to return to the way things used to be, try to recreate an old life that has gone away, to go back before everything changed, before thing, back when things were normal. And here the disciples are standing on the edge of a new world, a world where resurrection can happen. And what is their response? We're told that Peter, Thomas, who just confessed his faith in Christ, Nathaniel, James, and John, and two unnamed disciples, unnamed because it could have been any disciple, it could have been any two of us. These seven are gathered together and they're quiet. They don't know what to say. 
They don't know what to do. Where should they go from here? And Peter breaks the silence, often speaking without thinking. And Peter says, you know what? I'm going fishing. And the other six, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and those two unnamed disciples say, you know what? We're going to go fishing with you. And so the seven of them go fishing. In the post-resurrection world, they go fishing. And they pick back up the nets that they had laid down when Jesus called them. And they go back to their boat. Back to life as it was before Jesus called. Back to fishers of, well, fish. Not fishers of people. But it doesn't go well for them. Maybe their skills are rusty or maybe they just can't go back to the way things once were. They fish all night and they catch nothing but a cold. And if their empty nets were not humiliation enough, some guy starts shouting to them from the shore, from the beach. Sounds like he's making fun of them. And I know I'm the only one who thought this, but I can't help but see the scene from arguably the greatest movie ever made, Tommy Boy. When Tommy is on that boat after his father died and he's trying to impress that girl and sail the sailboat and it just doesn't sail. And these young kids, 10, 11 on the shore, start taunting him. That's the scene I pictured from the gospel. This boy on the beach says, children. The man on the beach calls them children. They're men, fishermen. But this guy calls them children. Children, you have no fish, have you? No, they say in their best middle school annoyed voice. (laughs) We'll cast your nets to the right side of the boat and you'll find some, this strange beach wanderer says. And you can almost feel their eyes roll through the centuries old text. Well, why didn't we think of that? But for some reason, they do it. They cast their nets on the other side, perhaps just to prove this annoying guy on the beach wrong. And almost immediately, the nets are filled with fish. So many that they can barely haul the nets back into the boat. Now, earlier this year, I read a biography. I don't read biographies much, but I went to a conference and the guy who wrote the book was there. It's a book on Ulysses S. Grant, really the first presidential biography I'd ever written. You know Grant as the great Civil War general and our 18th president. And I'll be honest, I didn't know much beyond that tagline about Ulysses S. Grant until reading this book. But I've learned by reading it that he's a remarkable man, an incredible general, and though some argue a great president. And he was perhaps uh, more than any other president, a staunch advocate for civil rights and for justice for former slaves and Native Americans, so much so that there was a move to tarnish his legacy because of how strong he stood up for the oppressed as president, which is why, well, why we don't really know much about him. But he started off his career as a very young man at West Point, and he served in the Army in the Mexican-American War. He was well-respected by generals, rose in the ranks above all his peers. And after the war, he was stationed. There wasn't really any conflicts, and so they sent him and a crew to a remote base in northern California. Their job was to keep peace during the gold rush. He was far from home. He had one child at home. His wife, his beloved wife, Julia, had a son while he was gone, Ulysses Jr. And he missed the birth of that son. He became depressed. 
And he became a bit of a drunk, as history tells us. And he would often get in trouble, this distinguished now captain in the army, getting in trouble because he drunk too much. Had he not decided to resign from the army, Grant would have soon been court-martialed and most likely dishonorably discharged. And, well, we never probably would have heard of him again. But he resigned and ended up back home, eventually landing in Galena, Illinois, when he was 32, his hometown, not that far from here, about three hours west, where he worked for his father with whom, well, he didn't have a great relationship. His father wouldn't even go to his own wedding. And he worked in the family leather tanning business, a West Point graduate, a decorated soldier, a captain who now worked the same job that he did as a teenager for his dad. His younger brother was his supervisor, and he was humiliated. He had no money. He had no hope. And for years, he just puttered around Galena, Illinois, until 1861 when Confederate troops fired on Fort Sumter in South Carolina, and the world changed. Two days later, there was a mass meeting in Galena, and they began to recruit men as they were doing all across the country to form little local groups that would then join the Civil War fight. There was only one man in Galena, Illinois, who had any officer training, Ulysses S. Grant. And after seven years of retirement from the Army, he sort of just accidentally stepped back in. He was the only one who knew how to do drills and how to turn these volunteers into an army. And the rest, well, the rest was history. A little over only eight years, eight years from that day, from being just a nobody, leather tanner, hopeless man, eight years later, Grant was elected president. In eight years, he rose from a broke, disgraced military officer to the genius who won the Civil War. He would be elected president when the country was still picking up the pieces from the Civil War, from Lincoln, who was his close friends, Lincoln, Lincoln's assassination and the disastrous presidency of Andrew Johnson, eight years from broke nobody to president. And I don't know, that gave me hope that a leader could be born from a second chance. Now, many of, many, many of you like to remind me how young I am. But, well, I've been long, around long enough, I guess, to witness enough people who have experience second chances. I have the privilege of hearing stories that some people never get to hear. I've seen churches turn around. I've seen lives turn around. And the common thing in every one of the story, whether it's the disciples and the gospels, whether it's Ulysses S. Grant, whether it's you and your story, the common thing seems to be that people who experience a second chance are simply the ones who have just enough courage, just a little more courage than maybe someone else, but enough courage to in the moment when it presents itself to just do something different, to take a step, one step in a different direction. And that one step becomes the moment that brings about a decisive change in their lives. It's throwing your net on the other side of the boat. It's saying yes to that first date. It's finally scheduling that appointment with the therapist that you knew you should have done a long time ago. It's going back to work. It's cleaning out his old clothes. It's sending the application, going back to school, having the surgery, whatever it is, it seems relatively ordinary and small in the moment. Grant showed up to a mass meeting, but showing up, Stepping out, getting out of bed and making yourself present to whatever shows up, 
Sometimes that's the most courageous thing you could do. Sometimes that's the moment, the act that changes your life. And that's why I love chapter 21 of John. And I love this story today. I don't care who wrote it and when they wrote it. it, It's just so incredible because it's so ordinary. It's everyday guys on a boat fishing. And yet right there in the middle of the everyday, when they're doing the things they've always done for most of their life, Jesus shows up and something miraculous happens. The minute the disciple whom Jesus loved, probably John, realizes how full the nets are, he just yells out, still can't see the guy on the shore, but just knows who it is and says, it's Jesus. It is the Lord. Because who else could it be? And Peter jumps in the water. He swims to the shore and meets Jesus. And when he finds him, Jesus is just chilling out on the beach with a charcoal fire. How ordinary is that? Cooking breakfast. And Jesus says, bring me some of the fish you caught. And so they go with the other six. Peter hauls in the net and they grab a couple fish. But we're told that the net was so full and scripture gives us this remarkable, surprising point of detail that there were. Did you catch it? How many fish? 153 fish, so specific, 153 otherwise known as a heck of a lot of fish. And Jesus takes a couple from that 153 and he cooks them on this charcoal fire. And then he tells the seven disciples, come, have breakfast, breakfast. It begins at breakfast. And we're told that now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and he shared with them fish. Now sometimes we think that hope, that second chances are theoretical, they're fantasy, they're some kind of miraculous events that may be the lucky experience. Something you hear about in a song or a poem, maybe you read about on a refrigerator magnet. But on the beach that day, there was no theory. There was nothing truly remarkable. Jesus didn't call his disciples to some imagined out there hope. All he did was ask them to breakfast. On the beach that day, they saw hope that they could count 153 and hope that they could taste breakfast with their Savior. And it's as if whoever it was who wrote down this story wanted us to know that no matter what or where we are or who we have been, no matter if we were the betrayers or the deserters or the deniers or had turned our back on life, on those we love like the disciples had done, our second chance is always right in front of us, right in the midst of ordinary life, right in the middle of ordinariness. Jesus appears and presents us with a challenge. Keep doing things the way you've always done them. Keep seeing the world the way you always have seen it and keep getting the results you've always got. Or do something different. See yourself in a different way. Change. Cast your nets on the other side. That's hope. That's what hope looks like. It's not out there somewhere. It's found right here in the midst of small acts of courage, of showing up and stepping out and tossing nets on other sides of the boat. In the midst of every life, hope shows up as 153 fish, as bread and wine broken and poured out and shared around a campfire. In a matter of days, the disciples' world has changed. And in less than 50 days, they will stand before thousands of people and share their story of how Jesus changed their life. But none of that would have ever been possible 
If on that morning they had just kept fishing the way they had always fished. They had kept doing the way things, doing things the way they had always been done. None of it, none of this would have been possible. But they took the chance. They threw their nets on the other side and caught 153 fish. But more than that, they caught hope. Amen. Let us sing that final verse of the song, verse 4. If you're looking for verse 4, it's at the bottom of the second page.